Have you heard of the, I think it's a Japanese and Chinese game, strategy game, Go? It's called Go. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, sure, it's, yeah. it's so hard when you first play it. I mean, it, it's this huge uh, wooden board, and I bought this, like, $100 set because I saw it on an anime that I was watching, and I was like, I'm going to learn how to play that. And what was funny is I only had, you know, I only had Kara to play with, so we, we both learned it at the same time. We both watched a couple of tutorials on like strategies and the basic rules and stuff. And she was immediately so much better than I was that I was so confused. Like she, be she beat me literally 20 times in a row. And I was like, I mean, I guess my brain just doesn't morph to this game in the same way that hers does. Cause she was Im yeah, immediately yeah. congealed to it and was like dominating me every yeah. single game. And, but yeah. the more you play though, then I was like, oh, this is what she's doing. And this is, these are the strategies that she's seeing. And I eventually beat her and she got extremely pissed and we haven't played since then. But, uh, but <laughs> so, so the record is 20 to 1. Yeah, exactly. It's 20 that to 1. That is, like, honestly, that is a marriage. Like, what the hell? You just described a marriage. Yeah. I mean, that's hilarious. Yeah. Right. That's, I, I, I mean, I share that with you, Nate. Like, I, I really, like, I, I always want to get better. For me, it's less about beating people, though. Right. For me and more just getting better at the thing like that's always been right, a driving right. force like I, you know in whatever kind of game or whatever else that i play like even the the theory world it's not it's not like oh i want to be better than you know diane or thomas it's like yeah. no i want to get better at this you know like and and i don't always know exactly what that means but you know you know i mean there's something cool about being able to recognize patterns that you hadn't seen before right. And that, that instantly, like, oh, there's three possible moves out of this. This is the risk of that one. This is the risk of that one. Just to be able to perceive that differently in that way is so much, so pleasurable for me, yeah. you know. I, I'll give an example. For me, I had, as when I had started playing golf, and really up until the last year or so, putting was always very difficult for me because the really nice thing about golf is, you just know your, you know your yardage, you know the elevation, and you know the wind, and you pick the club that goes that distance, right? And you, and you execute your swing, and of course there's all kinds of problems with executing your swing, but you don't have to gauge the distance. You just hit the club, and it will go that distance. If you know all those things and do them right, and whatever, whatever. But not true with putting. Putting is like, you know, and I always felt so confused by putting because... I can't, I don't know what it means to hit a 30 foot putt versus an eight foot putt. Like I don't understand what that means. And what changed for me two years ago is I started just trusting my body. It was a huge thing of like, when I step up to this putt, I'm gonna look at the hole and I'm gonna take some practice swings and my body is gonna decide how hard to hit it. And I mean, I, I made a conscious decision to do that, to allow that and not be in my head all the time of like, well, I don't know how hard to hit it. I, you know, what's the difference between this that distance and that distance? And I've become so much of a better putter mm -hmm. where just saying like my body's going to know and it's right most of the time. Like, I'm getting it wrong sometimes, but it's right most of the time. So I will outsource that to my body. So... Here's my segue, is to think about the relationship of our instincts to analysis and institutions. And, you know, I mean, I think one of the things that Heidegger is dealing with here, especially with, with Nietzsche, is like the institutions are no longer facilitate or driven by instincts and, and, and will, and they've sort of 
um, become more like the stabilizing ground for the last man to to subsist rather than you know transcend or being driven. But in the the way that you're talking about you know the, the your golf game. I'm thinking about the relationship between, you know, there's a certain dichotomy, like I'm either in my head doing the analysis, overriding my instincts, or I'm trusting my instincts. And, you know, the path there seems to be, you know, it doesn't seem like an open terrain between the two, but there seems to be a number of pathways between instincts and, and analytics to the point where I could imagine, you know, those analytic moves becoming so second nature that they, they become, become instinct. your instincts. Yeah, yeah. They become that's why instincts. I don't like the word, I don't, that's why I don't like the word instincts. I mean, something like f feel versus analysis. But that analysis also certainly has a feel to it. And I also, I mean, I really do very much think, like I'm kind of getting to this point now where my feel is, I feel, I'm so confident in my feel that I'm beginning to analyze how, what are the different ways in which I feel this. Right? right, and what are the different different things that produce the kind of feel that I want, and I don't experience any contradiction between those two things. It's like it's still a feel shot. It's not an analytic shot like 110 yards in the fairways. An analytic shot for me. It's still a, a feel shot, but nevertheless, like so. And there's a way in which even that analytic shot is like, well, this feels like the 110 yard swing, and this is a little more like the 105 yard swing, whatever the hell that means, right? right? Like. And you see, like when you watch the pros, they have the difference between 107 yards and 108 yards is a different feel for them. Like that they have so precisely calibrated senses of the intersection of the analytic and the the sort of feel stuff. Right. Um, I mean, that's where like I'm not at that. I mean, I'm nowhere near that kind of level or anything like that. But still, it's like it. I don't like the dichotomy either, and um, it, it and doesn't even to say feel the analytics are only engaging with you right. know, the abstracted. I mean, you can abstract those instinctive feels, as you as you said. Like, all right, you know, I've, right. I've got these feelings. I'm going to diagnose them. You know, this one's pushing me in this direction. Right. This one feels more or less icky when I think this is a 115 right. yard shot, right. which I know it's a 115 right. yard shot, but something in my body's telling me, eh, not with the way, right. you know. Something else is happening here, and that does. I mean, that does happen. Those are really interesting moments on the golf course where it's like everything about my cognitive analysis of the shot tells me that this is what I should be doing, but this just doesn't feel right. You know, it doesn't yeah. feel like what I should be doing, and you know, it depends which do you go with because you're often you are faced with choices, right? Like do this or do that, and I don't think that I have a conclusion yet as to which is the better one to go with. Um, but yeah, that's why I don't think it's, I don't feel like it's instincts at all because it's years of playing. And particularly for me, the last year and a half of playing a shitload, right? Mm -hmm. Like that, that it's not, I mean, unless we say instincts are things that are generated or produced or like a, yeah. created, fab, fabricated, that would be the only way that I'd be comfortable calling it instincts because I certainly didn't just have them. You know, well, like but that's, a, I mean, with, uh, again, you know, to go to Nietzsche or even Aristotle, you know, I mean... I, I, I always love Aristotle on this. It's like, you know, he's like, oh, you have your nature and then you have your second nature. And the right. distinction between nature and second nature doesn't seem to be particularly, it's like, yes. okay, you've got the ones that you start off with, but even the ones you right. start off with, it's not like they weren't made, right? right. It's not like right. they right. were descended, you know, like there's not a, again, there's not a transcendental principle that is right. holding them fast. It's like, well, you know, they... Everything is the difference between a, uh, 
an analytic, a secondary nature, and a primary nature are not of matter of kind, but of sort of like a matter of settledness, or like yeah, uh, habituation, relative repetition, yeah, habituation, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, in the in the context we're talking about, like that kind of habituation is for the most part a good thing. You're developing a repertoire. And if you internalize it, then it becomes a feel rather than simply analytic. Right. And then you can employ that right. feel on the course or, or in any sport or whatever. For Heidegger, right. at least in the context of these few lectures, it seems like that kind of habituation is the, the bad thing, right? It's, it's last man becoming too familiar with himself and not being able to kind of articulate the, the bad things about him, the, the representational thinking. So it's like... W- internalizing those kind, that repertoire for Heidegger, although it seems like it has a bunch of good, you know, outcomes as well. I mean, in terms of like the progress of human being, that is sort of the enemy in these few chapters, right? That, that repertoire that we've developed is the bad guy, uh, not, yeah. not the good thing. Well, it's the settling yeah. of, of it that seems to be the bad guy. And is that, I mean, let's just quickly, you know, Nietzsche uses the, t- the language of instinct all the time. And I do think that the way that he's using instinct is pretty much always in that, um, you know, kind of a routinization. You know, how many times does he talk about, uh, how, how many, you know, the whole transvaluation of values is in many ways also a transvaluation of instincts. Like, all right, what, what were the conditions of possibility for the human to have the instincts that they have? And, you know, what is the value of these instincts? And, you know, what do they overcome themselves into? Right. And, and it was like, at least the way that Heidegger is taking up the problem with the last man is that the last man wants to make last or to finalize a particular set of instincts that are superior to, you know, the old ones that have replaced it. So, the, you know, the analytic you know, the all-too-human analytic replaces the all-too-bestial, you know, animal instincts. Right. And then, like, creates the conditions of possibility for a, a kind of human to subsist but not transist. I don't know what the word right. would, would, would be there. Well, it's content with that one phase shift from the animal to the rational like in in the one section and he kind of it was a little bit odd but the way Heidegger phrases it is that the and this seemed very Hegelian in the vulgar sense that we have not accessed like the the truth of the truth or the wholeness of the whole that's a you know that that to me is the the problem I mean when we did this last time and we can pull some clips from that is like this this is the, the chunks that we read this time remind me why I don't like Heidegger, that there's such a preciousness to his authentic relationship to what being should be or what Nietzsche really is. And he is just so committed um, to, to that sensibility, right? Even if it is a kind of pluralism, which it is at times, like that interpretation stuff is just like, look, the true nature of meaning is a plurality of meanings. And it's like, well, then why is that the fucking true nature? Like why you don't need... The, the sort of the terminology of grounds that he just is insistent upon or, or that recur in all these places. Like you can critique other versions of Nietzsche without having to say that you are genuinely getting in touch with his thought and allowing his thought to fall away or whatever, you know, like, right. but there is such, such an insistence or a recurrence of an insistence on truth, yeah. right? 
correctness. Mm-hmm. That's unnecessary. I, I agree. I, again, I still go so back and forth with it. Sometimes I'm totally on your side, John. It's like, yeah. how do you, I, this, you know, you seem to be so incredibly confident in the right and in the accessing, yeah. you know, the, you know, the, the real meaning of this or that, or the real essence of, of this and that. It's not even just that there is one, but your confidence that you've, that you've you found it. it, which is, yeah. Uh, which is incredibly frustrating, but again, there are, he always is introducing these wrinkles. That's like, ah, what? Yes. An, oh, wait, oh, you, you kind of, you know, have a rug there that I, I'm slipping out from underneath, but I don't exactly yeah. know where it's taking me. And so we read lectures five, six, and and seven for today, and um, you know, f- five is is kind of uh, focusing on. Um, Uh, uh, finding and losing Nietzsche. I mean, they're all kind of focused on Nietzsche. Yeah. But um, it's this lecture six was the longest one, and I think the one that we gave the most attention to. And you know, it's his, and it's in the passages about the Overman that, or the Superman that you know, I think kind of strike at this dynamic the most, where he's like, and we talked about this this. Um, already but in many ways you know part of what's going on here at least to me seems to be heidegger's response to his association with the nazis and he wants Mm -hmm. to disavow a certain form of uh nietzsche scholarship that thinks of the superman as sort of like the quantitatively better version of what we have and you know he wants to they're like, look, there's this vulgarization of, of Nietzsche, and we just can't look at it like this. In other words, like, hey, Nazis, you, you, not only are you not the Superman, but... Which, which by the way, I mean, let me, just to interject there, like, I so fully agree with the critical dimension of that thing. Yeah. But then to turn around and claim I have the real true one is the... Yeah. It's just replicating the problem. Right, like yeah. that. To me, the problem is the kind of dogmatic conviction of uh, that anyone has access to that thing, and and yeah. again, it just seems unnecessary to me. Like you don't have to do that. You can say, "Hey, look, there's this version of Nietzsche out there that presents the Superman as this quantitatively, you know, superior one," but you know, here are some of the problems with that. But here's another version. Right, like here's yeah. another version that is just as Nietzschean, right? It's not like I'm just making this shit up. I'm pulling it from. I can show why you yeah. know you, you get this from Nietzsche. So I don't know why you have to have. In fact, I just don't think you do, unless you are setting yourself up as a priest, and he is. It doesn't. I mean, again, it's a complex form of priesthood, but he's still he's still like bought into that lineage of philosopher in which the philosopher is the one who knows the truth and it's like i just find that even as he complicates it in really interesting and compelling ways his stuff on reading in chapter seven i think there's lots of really good stuff there like what is it you know what to do what you need to do in order to read a philosopher and to hear a philosopher and whatever else you know and, and then contrasted with what we said last time about his his etymology of the then he blinks passage right and you just go dude 
right? Like, uh, again, it's so not authoritatively that his, positing right. a, a, a thoughtful and smart and interesting, but also totally. a bit strained and, and yes. you know, out yeah. there etymology that, again, you could make a case for it, but he just so, like, totally. Yeah. Here's what it is, right? Yeah. Blinking, blinking comes to mean deception. And you're like, really? Blinking means deception? Like, again, it's not an, a total random association, but it's an unusual one. Right. Yeah. Right? right? Like, the idea of blinking as a tell or something, of course. It's, it's not a, it's not, but he's like, this, I mean, what is his phrasing there? It's like, this word is related etymologically to another word. It's like, so what? Right. Right? Yeah. What word is not related etymologically to Six whatever the hell you of want etymological... it you know, separation right. can get you pretty and, much anywhere. Right. And, and, but, you know, we know that because we're involved with language enough and, and have done that. So the, the fact of something, it's one thing to say this word derives historically from this other word. But to say it's related to, yeah. come on. Right. Well, I, I totally agree. I mean, like, I, again, I see the pathway that it actually seems incredibly related to um, truth and lies on a non moral sense where like i mean in many ways he's talking about the apollonian is that you know the i mean the blinking here is this glittering deception that's going to create form that's from right. the chaos and we all right. know it's a hoax but we're all going to agree that it's the truth and after such and such a time we think that it's the right. truth and it's actually the full adapt like the to fully adopt that you know the blink is the truth is the last man that you know this human creation is not a human creation it is the case it's so like i i mean when i read those passages in in nietzsche i I have just a much simpler take on the blink like what does the last man do he looks at love he looks at the universe he looks at these other things he blinks in other words like they're not all that impressive to him because he knows what they are right right Right, like, eh, or he thinks he, he thinks he knows what they are. He's no yeah. longer astonished, and he's no yeah. longer. I mean, the the last man, it, it, just in sort of my reading, the the last man is the one, and Nietzsche defines it this way: the one who just doesn't care to overcome himself. Yeah. Right? It, it, right. Humanity has been defined in its process as its own self overcome. Like, here's what makes the human human: is that it transforms the human all the time. I mean, that's a recurring line on Nietzsche's. Like, we are a species that tortures ourselves incessantly through history, the amount of blood that has been spilled to produce all of this. You know, like, this is what we do as a species. This is an extraordinary thing. The last man is the end point, which is like, eh, yeah, why bother torturing ourselves, right? Why bother causing ourselves pain? Mm -hmm. And again, I don't necessarily want to claim that that's the right reading. I, I think that it lends itself towards other kinds of thoughts that are interesting. Um, and that's frankly, I, I mean, you know, he, he has the, the thing about losing Nietzsche, right? Like losing Nietzsche. Now, what does it mean to sort of to, to get Nietzsche and then to lose him? Very ambiguously phrased. But one of the phrasings of losing Nietzsche is to, to set it free. Right now, mm-hmm. again, not sure exactly what he means by free, freedom, but my version via Deleuze would be like to play it through other things, right? right. You want to find the truth of Nietzsche deploy it in some other context and make it do something else. There is a sense that the, the losing Nietzsche for Heidegger also is a kind of more permanent sense of losing him. Like, like not just, uh, not just ingratiating yourself in his thinking or like finding his rhythm of thinking and going with it. I think because he maybe wrongly uh, assigns like a metaphysical 
way of thinking to Nietzsche. Like he's the what does he say? He's like the last great, the last, the last metaphysician. I think Heidegger is invested in not just passing through Nietzsche and inhabiting his thought, but eventually surpass, like exceed, exceeding it. And uh, what I mean again, I I do think, however, that Heidegger's like employment of Nietzsche here. I mean, it's so clearly influential in, in the kind of post-structuralist movement. So the, the treatment sure. itself must have been taken directly for f- people like Foucault and, and Deleuze, et cetera. But yeah. like you said, like the, the treatment of him in some ways, the, would you call it a vulgarization of Nietzsche? Not at all points, but like in the kind of diagnosis of him as a metaphysician, because to me, like he's clearly not a metaphysician in that in that vulgar sense. But I, th- these are those are the moments for me, and even in his Nietzsche lectures, like, look, he is, he thinks Nietzsche is incredibly important and right. a profound sort of intellect and profound thinker. So it's not, but but he also thinks that he has surpassed. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I agree with you. Yeah. For instance, like, I, I, I'll point to one passage that really struck me in terms of the question, and this is, I think, a much deeper question in terms of Heidegger's tone or Heidegger's general approach to things, but it's the question of, you know, his relationship to this common sense thing that is the problem, right? Like the, the, the sort of platitude function and all of that, that way of thinking of thinking is the problem, and that he associates with the tradition. Right. And, and he says, when he talks about his relationship to the tradition, and this is where you got to give him credit, he says, our own way derived, this is on page 55, where he says, our own way derived from such thinking, right? The representational thinking. So it's like he's not simply claiming to be outside of it. Yeah. And so you give him props for that. He recognizes that he's embedded in the metaphysics, et cetera, et cetera. Right. But he says, so right after that, he says, our own way derives from such thinking. It therefore remains necessarily bound to a dialogue with traditional thinking. And I think a dialogue a dialogue positions interlocutors one, as separate from one another. It's not a dialogue, right? And if you think of it, and I do think he, I do think he thinks of it as a dialogue, which is he's having a dialogue with the tradition, right. which would position him at some level, yes, in a conversation, but also outside of the position of tradition, as opposed to saying, I'm like I think of Derrida's version of this as being incredibly different, which is, I am only in the tradition yeah. in the tradition trying to push it in other directions from inside of it. Yeah. Right? Like, and, and, and recognizing that I can't get out, that there's no dialogue right. going on uh, for Derrida in that regard. And not just for the Gadamerian reasons, you know, but, but, um, uh, but, and I do think that that to me is a symptom of that if you think of yourself in dialogue with conventional thinking as necessarily in dialogue, that's a big deal. That matters. But it's, it's just one kind of move. There's a different kind of move that, that would see itself as fully and completely immersed in yeah. and constituted by conventional thinking and yet not wanting to simply replicate. Right. Right? And, and struggling to figure out how to not simply replicate it despite the fact that I'm not in dialogue with it. I'm immersed in it. That's a different disposition. Yeah. So, so Heidegger, you could say that Heidegger here and there at least, adopts kind of a meta position where he wants to get on top of the, he wants to get on top of the entire philosophical spectrum and be able to say, this is the right way. This is the path out. It's a philosopher. I mean, what philosopher have you read that does not see themselves as surpassing all previous philosophy? Right. 
Yeah, but you but know. I mean, like you said, people like Derrida at least try to situate themselves rather than they would at least acknowledge that everyone's a product of of traditional representational thinking of their epoch of their image of thought in Deleuze's yeah. terms. Right? You are you are absolutely situated. You you can't just right. transcend your contents and look down upon it from above. Um, but I I mean to be fair, there are plenty of moments in Derrida yeah. where I see that very similar kind of move of like, I am not that and I don't want to be doing, you know, right, right, and, yeah. and their moment, but like, you know, his critical moments towards Austin in the signature event context or towards Levi Strauss in the structure sign and play moment. Like, you know, it's not, that's why to me, for instance, that's why I take on the terminology of style. That's the really, one of the really big things that appeals to me is because what I can say in this case is, I'm not being any less metaphysical than any of the people that I'm writing about. It's just my style of doing metaphysics is different. Right. And so there's not, it's, it's not a question. I mean, what style gives you in that regard is because it's not really important or has not historically been seen as really important is that it's not really a, a substantive deviation, right? It, it is only a dispositional inclination and, and the only becomes a positive quality, right? Like the, right. so there's a... I mean, I'd hate to say a humility associated with it, but, what, you yeah. know, because, I mean, Jesus, <laughs> associating me with humility seems ridiculous. But yeah. it's, it's one of the things that I feel like style buys me is it's just, it's just talking about different ways of inhabiting the same moves, right, the same metaphysical. So the reason I would hesitate to call Heidegger more metaphysical, although Derrida does that, right? Like, that's what makes... Heidegger's calling Nietzsche the last metaphysician is what makes Heidegger the last... Yeah. But I, I, I would hesitate to do that simply because it sort of implies that I'm no longer in metaphysics, the one who's doing the naming right. of that person as a metaphysician. Right. And it's like, of course you are, right? Uh, uh, of course, and absolutely 100%. Not 99.9, .9, and you figured out a 0.1% way out. You absolutely fully immersed 100%. That doesn't mean that every way of being immersed 100% is the same thing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So we are talking about disposition styles like within the content that we're calling metaphysics. I like that line to say that, you know, only here is that to say I'm only doing metaphysics uh, or there's only a way of doing metaphysics as a positive quality. That, right. you know, as the, as the right, idiosyncrasy, right. idiosyncrasy that now remakes how metaphysics works, yeah. you know, not right. over an overarching metaphysics, but like right. pushes it or tweaks it in this or that direction. And I think it's also, I, I found that, that passage, by the way, that, oh, yeah. you know, this is one of those, there are two passages I, I kind of want to look at. The first one we were talking about, um, the problem with fixing Nietzsche um, and uh, that Heidegger seems to both proclaim and then undercut. Uh, this is on 51, is after he's talking about for the, like, the umpteenth time that that line, the wasteland grows. <laughs> of him who that's your, that's your, favorite, your favorite line, right? <laughs> um, so this is on 51, maybe like 10 lines down. Um, what if he had known that he himself had to be a precursor, a transition, pointing before and behind, leading and rebuffing, and therefore everywhere ambiguous, even in the manner uh, and in the, in the sense of the transition, 
All thoughtful thought argues that this is so, as Nietzsche himself knew and often put into enigmatic words. This is why every thoughtful converse with him is constantly carried into other dimensions. This is also why all formulas and labels fail in a special sense and fall silent in the face of Nietzsche's thought. And, you know, there he seems to be saying that the attempt to formalize, the attempt to fix, the attempt to find the right Nietzsche misses what is possible or what, what, what the power of Nietzsche's writing, which is not determinative, but is a carrying away. And any thoughtful engagement with Nietzsche's thinking is going to carry you away into other dimensions. And so it's like the first move is to find Nietzsche the capacity to thoughtfully engage. And the second one is to lose Nietzsche as a fixed determinate position and to, you know, follow along with that thinking into arenas that may or may not seem all that, you know, Nietzschean. Right. You can, you can do that. It's just that there's a couple of problems there with his, with what he does, because he, he thinks, in, in this case, first of all, that Nietzsche is special in that regard, right? right? Like, uh, that, that, you know, and, and many of the philosophers are special in that they are warranting, like his, the Plato references, they warrant this kind of polysemousness in ways that other things don't seem to warrant it, right? Like, that's why common like sense is a problem. Menu? The TGI Friday's exactly. menu? <laughs> right, exactly. Um, so, so it's like there's a specialness to the thinking of philosophers that in, enables this kind of move. Uh, that it seems to me the whole baseline for the problem is set against why philosophers are not articulators of common sense and why we need to read them against common sense, as, as, as opposed to saying common sense doesn't function as common sense. Right. Yeah. Right. It doesn't actually work in this or propositional logic doesn't actually work. I mean, that's why like what you're doing in terms of Plato is to me really interesting because it's like it's saying something different. Propositional logic doesn't function as propositional logic. Right. right? Like it's not saying, oh, there's this thing other than propositional logic that could be, you know. Um, and, and so, I mean, that's that's one of the ways in which it kind of recuperates the moves and also the, the mover was like, he is the one who's deciding what gets to count as the thoughtful thought and, uh, um, and, and not others, right? Or, or to, uh, kind of dismissiveness right. towards all of the readings of Nietzsche. Again, with which in part I'm entirely sympathetic, but not because those thinkers haven't gotten to the true essence of Nietzsche, just because of, I mean, even a, a kind of consequentialist framework is just because their, th their thinking in response to that, it just doesn't push thinking. Yeah. It doesn't care yeah. to. It just wants to get Nietzsche right. You know, whatever that right is, whatever that thing is. And it's like, well, Heidegger's, Heidegger's version is much more movement-oriented and movement -oriented and dynamic and not static, but it still thinks it's right, right? It yeah. still thinks that movement is, the movement of thinking is the truth of Nietzsche. Right, right. And it's like, well, why not just be like, look, the movement of thinking is a different orientation into reading Nietzsche you know, period, mm -hmm. right? Like, and, and it is. Um, that offers other kinds of thinking possibilities. Yeah. You know, to approach it this way generates different kinds of things. You just don't need it to be like, well, Nietzsche was the one who discovered it, and we have to find it. You just don't need all of the, this, all of those dynamics of a, a very kind of traditional version of essence, 
you know, yeah. that are very familiar. And this is like, I mean, this is not the 19th century that he's writing. This is the 1950s, right? Like, I mean, it, it's not like that discourse isn't available to Heidegger. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. You know, except for that he's already Heidegger now. You know? yeah. yeah. I mean, but what makes, what makes Nietzsche exceptional for Heidegger, though, is not that he's, that Nietzsche's able to, like, explicitly, you know, or in some, you know, outstanding way write about his times. It's that he's diagnostic of the problems of his, of his times and that yeah. the sort of unthought, right, which is what he, he uses in one of the later That's lectures... Right. The unthought thread in Nietzsche is what's so truly important about him. And then that he kind of articulates that horizon of being through the overman that gives us yeah. something else, right? Something else to, to latch on to rather than simply right. just lying in the, the simplicity of traditional metaphysical or representational things. That's where, like, in, in my terminology, I would say the content of what Heidegger does with Nietzsche, I'm totally down with, right? right? Like, I, I, I really do like the directions. It's just how he, go, how he gets there. It, and sometimes it's not always the case, but sometimes... But I also realize, I mean, I was thinking about this right before we came on, is the extent to which people like us, we have relationships with books, oh, right? Yeah. It's not... We don't read them. Yeah. Right, we have relationships, and those relate like all relationships, like your marriage, like your guys's sort of romantic relationships. They shift from day to day. Yeah. You're gonna have a day where like she's irritating as fuck, and the next day she's amazing, or what? You know, yeah. like that's how a relationship. It's not a progression towards increased intimacy. It's a shifting of different kinds of intimacies. And I think like you know when I was sat down to reread this, I I was like, okay, I'm in a kind of cranky mood, and I'm not in the sort of slow, careful... Remember, I, I think it was... I don't remember if it was last time or two times ago where I was like, reading Heidegger was so helpful Soothing. to me because it just... It settled me. Like, it was hard. It was difficult. It was like row, you know, going out and rowing for 40 minutes before I finally realized that I was on the water. It was, you know... It was work, but it was good. It was productive work. Whereas this time, I was just like, oh, this is just fucking irritating. Like, not because I wanted him to get to the point, just because I'm just so tired of a certain kind of... For me, the word precious... Yeah just kept coming up, like this precious relationship to thinking or to Nietzsche or to the Superman that others just don't seem to appreciate, that there is such a, uh, that, that, that quality that just kind of, you know, my relationship with him, you know, we're having a bad day, right? No, yeah. <laughs> like, it's, not da- it's not date night. <laughs> I get that. But I also, like, since I've been reading some Foucault and, and we've obviously read Deleuze's What is Philosophy?, the extent to which Nietzsche is the figure as a kind yeah. of launching pad yeah. for a, a route yeah. out of dialectics, out of yep. metaphysics, out of representational thinking. Heidegger prefigures that, I mean, not that long before them, but enough before them. Yeah. Foucault's making the same arguments. He's like, listen, Absolutely. Nietzsche is basically the only figure. The guy. And for yeah, Deleuze, the it's the same thing. Like, yeah. how do we get out of this type of thinking? And now none of them are going to say he provides an answer, they're going to continually say right. that right. it's a horizon for maybe a potential right. transfiguration of human being. Right. And Heidegger basically says right. that too. He's not, he doesn't exactly say, I have the answers. He's saying that the answer might be contained That's here, right. and if we, can, if we really press on it, you know, we might right. get there. Um, yeah. No, I think you're right. It's interesting because in my graduate class, I decided for next week that I was going to do the class on... Uh, Nietzsche, 
Nietzsche, Freud, and, and Marx, right? The sort of the hermeneutics of suspicion type of stuff. And I was beginning to think about what I might lecture on. And that's the thing that kept coming back to me, is there's a way in which Marx and Freud think that they figured something out, whereas Nietzsche doesn't, mm -hmm. right. right? Like, in the sense of understanding, like, life is will to power is, to me, structurally really different than historical materialism or psychoanalysis. Like, structurally. Yeah. It's not simply that they have different contents or whatever. That there's, there's a kind of, like, hey, shit happens, and then more shit happens, and then other shit happens. <laughs> uh, uh, sensibility to Nietzsche, who of course is just as polemical as the other folks, yeah. right, and can be just as dismissive, except for that there are also passages that undermine the polemics and the dismissiveness, that again, you can just miss those or ignore those or uh, dis disregard those things, but I just, they're just not as prevalent in most other thinkers. That's the thing that to me is, hey, if you're going to write dismissive polemics, you got to at some point dismiss the dismissiveness too. Right, like you have to do that kind of move if you want to do if you want to follow in that that kind of line of thinking. You got me thinking about Heidegger's preciousness because I I totally agree. Right, he I mean everything wants right. to be slowed down and made a bit more delicate, and you know I, I don't want the, the clumsy and to, and, and to be and to be clear, like right, like to be clear, I that appeals to me at times, but yeah, right. sorry. No, I, I get that, and I, but I'm, I'm thinking about it in relationship to Heidegger's own diagnostic of Nietzsche's shout with to, you know, wow. also see something quite uh, um, uh, uh, complex, but, you know, I'm, I'm thinking just a little bit more about the historical context of each of those thinkers and, like, Nietzsche's, own, like, rage or indignation against a kind of complacency and belief in progress um, whereas Heidegger, post-World War II, is dealing with sort of like the, 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 the twin horns of an existential dread on the one hand after like I mean, a complete like lack of faith in the Enlightenment and in progress at an intellectual level, but then also an incredible clumsiness of, you know, a newly dominant America and sort of like belief in a kind of normalizing, normatizing power of, of, you know, cultural tropes. And in both cases, you can just imagine him reacting against a kind of brute clumsiness and you know, like a little preciousness, a little delicacy, mm -hmm. a little yeah, slowing down. Is, and he describes yeah. the Superman that way Worth too. It. Like, like and if the Superman had characteristics, He's actually slower than the last man. He's more That's considerate. Right, right. You know, he's he's right. more economical with his speech. Attentive. Yeah, yeah, more attentive. Yeah. Which I thought was kind of like because that's a that almost seems like a reach. I mean, it makes sense, but when he talks about the the Superman being qualitatively not quantitatively different from the human or the last man, it's like well then, how do you have just these characteristics available to describe him. How do you know he's more economical <laughs> with his speech? Yeah, right. You know, but yeah, and I get that he does it. So, like, there there are moments like this where I'm, as someone you know who spent a lot of time reading Nietzsche, and this is on fifty nine. He says he, where he's he's making the kind of distinctions that he makes several times, which is the Superman is not the person who's the great politician. It's not the like highly visible successful person, right? And he says, but. Um, but Nietzsche doesn't mean a type of existing man, only super, super, super dimensional. 
nor does he mean a type of man who casts off humanity to make sheer caprice the law and titanic rage the rule. And I'm like, really? Are you sure of that? Because I think there are a lot of places where you could say making sheer caprice of law is exactly what he's talking about. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. And titanic rage as the rule is exactly what he's talking about. Like, I don't think that that's right. I don't think that Nietzsche is really doing that. But to sort of say it so, as sort of dismissively, like, he doesn't mean this, it's like, ah, I'm not so sure that he doesn't mean that. I'm not sure that a sheer caprice of law is simply antithetical to Nietzschean uh, thinking. Right. Like, this sort of disregard, I mean, think of it in the genealogy of morals, the man who is the, uh, the, the figurehead, now this isn't the overman, and I understand that, but like, the man who is the pinnacle, the individual, who is a true individual, Meaning, not beholden to morality, not beholden to law, not beholden, like, is not constituted by that. And it's an impossible thing, of course. But that person is so, like, talk about caprice in relation to law, that's exactly what he is. Right? It's like, I don't give a shit about this thing. This is so irrelevant to me as to be, you know, beneath me. Yeah. Right. We're not even fuck the herd, like, I don't, like... Who cares about the herd? Yeah. 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 Right? Who cares about sort of the, the day-to-day operations? Like, I mean, and this is, a, by the way, this is something that I don't like in Nietzsche, right? Like, that that reading is very available, yeah. you know, which is just someone who could come along and say, who cares if we exterminate, you know, millions of people in the interest of overcoming? Like, I don't give a shit about the deaths of millions. Right. Like, that... That is available as a reading of the Nietzschean Superman. It's not just wrong. It, or at least to me, there's just too many places where that dynamic, the sort of disregard... I mean, think about even the, the stuff Heidegger quotes in here in terms of the institution building. Right. I was just right? going to turn we, there. We've lost Go the courage of institution buildings. Institutions, you know, if you really want to have a good institution, you have to not give a fuck about the happiness or welfare of human beings for centuries. <laughs> Yeah. That yeah. that does not sound like a careful, attentive, gentle no. overman. And again, I'm not saying that's a version of the overman that I want to champion either. You guys know you've got heard my version of, of Deleuze, you know, the need right. the overman of futurity, right? But um but I'm well aware that that version is one version. Yeah. Right? <laughs> but it is a, an interesting question of like the function of the institution in relationship to the to the human. That That's right. You know, I mean, right. I would imagine that all Which is really three what he's us, asking in that passage. Yeah. yeah. And I would imagine that all three of us are far more inclined toward a kind of institution amenable, amenable to the last man. Like right. we want yes. our institutions yeah. To yes. be relatively democratic and right. you know egalitarian, it's like they are supposed to protect the people and allow for and allow you know, us, safe harbor, and, allow us to and, be individuals, or at least pretend right. to be individuals. Right? I mean, it's like that. That right. individualism seems to be the disease for Nietzsche. It felt like in that one part about like Russia or whatever, it was it seemed almost proto-Marxist. Like the we need to actually give way okay. to authority. The, the the fear right. of authority is the disease of individualist democracy. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, like, and, you know, Nietzsche's anti-liberalism is, you know, you can find right. instances of it all over the place. All but, over you know, place. I mean, it's important that, you know, Nietzsche's writing about a, you know, a, a, a pre-Soviet yeah. Russia in that, For sure. you know, like, 
you know, the, but that that Russia has, you know, and I love the phrase where it's like, you know, that Russia can wait. That Russia can has endurance. Right. Yeah. Has it has endurance that that um but it, it seems to be tied to a certain kind of of suffering for the sake of uh, a transformation or as a movement. Like, you know, the institution isn't for the stability of the people, the institution is for the sake of the transformation of uh, like of a people into something. Well that's right. And that's else. so that's that's important. That would be, right? it's like, I think it, you have to, you don't have to, but you, to me, you have to add in to his critique of those, um, um, or to his interest in that sort of authoritarian quality, that the, the telos of authoritarianism is not just a new person having power. Right. Right? Yeah. The, the, the telos is the transformation of the species itself away from a certain kind of human, uh, a traditional human. And so that's the problem with real authoritarianism, right, is that real authoritarianism is simply, for the most part, just about privileging certain kinds of pre-existing versions of success, well-being, etc., and just putting certain people in those positions at the, behest, at the expense of many others. So, yes, can one complicate Nietzsche's authoritarianism? Yes. And does Nietzsche point the way to do so? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but you can't simply dismiss the authoritarianism in this either, right? Like, right. So, I mean, it's kind of like, you were using the terminology, and I quite like this, the, the, the loudness and the quietness, right, like that Heidegger br yeah. brings up. Like, sometimes you got to just make loud noises, and sometimes you got to be quiet. It's almost like Heidegger is just being loud about being quiet. Right, like yeah. he has to proclaim, like, I'm him. the fucking. Well, he's just like screaming to us all, like I'm the quiet, silent one. It's like, then shut up about it, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's funny. <laughs> well, but the other thing with the institutions as well is, I, I wonder, this institution of the last man. I wonder how conceivable it even is. You know, you, you think about democratic oriented, you know, sustainability oriented um, institutions. And I just don't, I'm not convinced that those aren't themselves authoritarian and transformative yeah. in their authoritarianism. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, it's, it's a way more complicated question. I mean, there's, there's no doubt about it. And Nietzsche's relationship to democracy, which as you said, I mean, it's very easy to find a million places in Nietzsche's writing where democracy is the sign of mediocrity, right? It is uh, yeah. the, what democracy indicates is the championing of a kind of mediocrity. Yeah. And Nietzsche's version of social evolution is about the, the, the unique exceptions, right? The, yeah. uh, like what the are the conditions, right? What are the social conditions that can produce the occasional extraordinary individual? And one that champions mediocrity is not it. Whereas one that champions a kind of oppression is better at that. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Not because of the oppression, right? <laughs> Not for the sake of the oppression, but because oppression seems to be the conditions in which people respond. Yeah, right. Yeah. Like, our lives are too easy. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's like the, the cultivation of the last man. I mean, you could argue that, and I'm sure Nietzsche would still, that we are still in the age of the last man. And I don't even really know what it would mean to be the longest and lasting. Be in the age of the Superman either, because then, like, that would be 
almost too transformative. It would be somehow chaotic, you know. That it would. It depends. Everything hinges on what you mean by the overman, right? And I think he's quite right about that. It's like if the overman. Again, that's why the answer of futurity as a perpetual state yeah, right. is, is the only satisfying answer. To when it's what? It can't yeah. be a, you can't ever cross a threshold into the... Well, it seems like it is the Superman. you need itself. both. I mean, it, yeah. it is kind of, it sets itself up as a binary, but you need the, th- you need the threshold. And you're only ever on that threshold, right? I mean, he, Heidegger right. says it here somewhere that you can only define the last man in relation to the Superman. So, which was kind of odd right. to me, because I was like, you'd think you'd be able to define the last man on his own terms, but no, you can only define him in relation to the potential, you know, for transformation. Mm-hmm.